Welcome to the Library Love Fest podcast. I'm Virginia Stanley. I'm Chris Connolly. And I'm Lainey Mays. We are the library marketing team at HarperCollins Publishers. Above all, we love bringing librarians and great books together. Join us every week as we present buzzworthy books through author interviews, conversations with editors, and expert opinions from librarians like you. Enjoy the show. Book Buzz, HarperCollins Book Buzz. Check it out. Book Buzz, HarperCollins Book Buzz. Brought to you by Library Love Fest. Hi, everyone. This is Lainey. Welcome to the Library Love Fest podcast. Today, we're back with another episode of Editors Unedited, and we welcome Emily Crump, Executive Editor at William Morrow. Hi, Emily. Thank you so much for having us today, Lainey. I am so excited to be here with Jocelyn Jackson. She is the New York Times bestselling author of 10 novels, who Entertainment Weekly called A Master of Domestic Suspense. She's a library favorite, and her most recent book, Never Have I Ever, inducted her into the Library Reads Hall of Fame. And you'll remember that three picks will get you a place in the Hall of Fame. All of her books have been Indie Next picks, including three consecutive number one picks. She is a book club favorite and an award-winning audiobook narrator. Mother May I, her next book will be on sale in April. Jocelyn, thank you so much for being here with us today. Oh, thank you um, for inviting me to do this with you, Emily. This is fun. It's we so don't get to, I, you know, you do a lot of interviews and stuff, but never with your editor. It's a little, it's a little intimidating. Oh, stop. <laughs> well, I'm going to be like, like there's this conceit, right, that we authors have that you guys don't really know how the sausage is made. Like we do all this sausage making that we hand it to you. And that's just not true. Like nobody knows better how the sausage is made as you, but it still feels really vulnerable to talk about your process with your editor. It's really fun though. And I feel like this is an opportunity for us to kind of just sit down and pretend like we're having an editorial chat on the phone, which is oh, such that sounds a fun. cool, fun thing to do. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I think the best thing that can happen to an author is to be edited. Like I really like, I really like that relationship. Like there's, there's this thing, like one of the questions I always get from, you know, when I do book clubs or whatever is like, oh, do you, do you fight with your editor? Like, did your editor try to make you put in more kissing or whatever? And it's like, it's not that kind of relationship. Like, here's this person who genuinely wants to take this thing you've spent years of your life doing and make it the very best it can be and who has the skill set and the knowledge to do that. So it's like, to me, it feels really collaborative. Is that how it feels to you as an editor? does and honestly one of the things I love the most about my job is that I am the greedy reader who gets to go through and ask all the questions and know everything about the characters that I want to know and so <laughs> I feel like this really privileged person because not only do I love to read but I am curious and hungry for more and I feel like I get to get more and not everybody does and so it does feel really collaborative. And I also would like to think that I try not to say you must do things. I try to say, I think this might be a cool thing. Let's talk about it. Um, and so I feel lucky that we have this really collaborative relationship and just get to have fun together and talk about books and characters and all sorts of fun things. 
Yeah, and just try to make it just tight, you know? So yeah. I, I love that. I'm a reviser more than a writer, so I love editorial. <laughs> That's a good thing. We yeah. like to hear, I, editors like to hear that. Yeah. Um, so before we kick it off too much, I wanted to say, how are you? And how are you doing in this pandemic? We're in this kind of crazy world, and I just wanted to, first of all, touch, in, touch base with you on that. Um, I was doing great up until I, you know what a daredevil I am. I tried to walk up a step and broke my foot. So <laughs> now I'm very, very stir crazy. How are you? I'm doing great. Um, I'm in New Jersey and I have two little boys and they are still in school. So I'm really grateful about that. And fingers crossed that everybody stays healthy and that keep going a little bit longer. yeah I'm you guys moved right before this hit out of New York City in a tiny tiny New York City apartment like and that it, must whew. <laughs> we had good timing we're so lucky to have space yeah um, but still be close enough that when things come back to normal I get to go back to New York City and see you and see my friends and colleagues like Lainey and um, yeah. you know get back get back to it so it's a good balance yeah well I'm wondering if you can tell us in your own words a little bit about Mother May I and what we have to look forward to. Oh, sure. Um, well, Mother May I begins um, when a, a young mother looks away for just one minute, you know, the way you do, just looks away and bam, her baby's gone. And most of the time, I mean, everybody's had that experience. Kids squirt off to look at a bird, but, but for Brie, it's not like that. There's a note in his place that says, if you want to see your child again, you will do these things. And, and because this is a Jocelyn Jackson novel, I, I think you've probably already guessed this isn't a standard kidnap and ransom, like where, oh, we just want a bunch of money. It's there, of course, you know, the past has a pulse. The past have, has teeth in my books and the past is definitely coming for Brie in this novel. Um, and the, I think the, the pivot of the book is when she learns pretty early on that, um, that the person who's taken her son is actually a mother herself. So they're in this really weird position where they understand each other and they have, they have empathy for each other, but each of them feels like their own child is at stake in this conflict. So even though they have this weird empathetic connection, they are heading for just conflagration. Like there's, there's no easy or sweet or, oh, we'll just compromise. When it's your kid, you, you don't compromise. So, um, so it is the, the stakes are really, really high. The stakes are really, really high. And one of my favorite things about this book is that there are people that you recognize, maybe not exactly, but you can recognize shades of them. Mm -hmm. And because of that, you can really relate to them. And these characters they stick with you oh thank you and that's that's one of the things i am always looking for when i'm reading a book is i want to feel like i know these people and then i want to talk about them with my friends so yeah. good work <laughs> thanks <laughs> i think of myself as a character-based writer like for me that's what comes first i have people i care about and I, I actually, you know, it takes me a long time to, to write a book. Usually when I sit down to write a book, at least one or two characters in the book are people I've been thinking about for years. In this case, Marshall, the, the, there's a character named Marshall who 
actually came into the book very late. Like I had written the whole book and then realized, oh, it needs two narrators. And I had this character I'd been thinking about for years. I was like, I found the book where Marshall can go. And so it was very easy to write him because I've been thinking about this guy for 10 years and looking for, like, um, I remember my agent was very nervous. And I was like, yeah, I'm adding a second narrator. And she's like, but you're almost, and then I, I turned in and she was like, oh, you know, yeah, uh-huh, okay, yeah. Because he's just, he came out that way. So I, I kind of sit with these people for a really long time. And then they work their way into stories. So I really care about them. So would you say that the idea for this book came from the characters or did it come from a different place? Um, well, the characters are always what, what drives the book for me. Like, um, I think that that's where the book comes from is just these people I make up. But once I get some distance from a book or sometimes during the writing of the book, I'll begin to see what I'm really writing about. I, I think for me... Um, this book really came out of my work with reforming arts, which uh, Emily, I know you know a little about that. We've talked about it in the past. I um, I work as a, a well, we're not right now. We're in a pandemic, but I've taught as a volunteer in um, a maximum security women's prison here in Georgia. We are in partnership with. I'm also on the board, so I get to say we. Um, we are in partnership with Georgia State University and in two women's prisons, as soon as people can go back in the prisons when it's safe again, we will be running degree programs for uh, AAs out of two, in two different women's um, prisons. Um, it is my heart work and, and sort of teaching in this environment and meeting people who have come through the criminal justice system, like what I have learned in my almost, in more than seven years of doing this, is that um, all of my students come out of poverty, um, almost all, like 99.9% .9 come out of both really extreme poverty and 98% out of extremely disordered family situations. So they don't have a lot of opportunity and when they do get an opportunity, it's uh, sometimes just the one. And so when I look at it that way, when I think about all that work I've done and how race plays a factor and your family stability pays, plays a factor, not just in what you do or what you become, but just in the kind of opportunities you get to maybe be okay, um, there's, this, it's, it, there's this real inequality of opportunity happening. And so Bree and the other mother, sort of started on a level playing field. Bree is the mother whose child is stolen. They were both like barely clinging to the middle class. Like, you know, just maybe that last $20 has to last four days if they're going to make rent that month, like that kind of economic. And then Bree got a scholarship and she went to college and she got through and she made a very advantageous marriage. Her husband's a lawyer. She's been extremely upwardly mobile. She's now upper middle class and her in-laws are wealthy. Um, whereas the other mother, her husband died, her child lost her scholarship. They, they went the other way and they have slid out of that place where you might get an opportunity into, into darkness and so this is a book about class. It's a book about privilege. It's a book about who gets second chances. So that's a really good setup for my next question. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I hate is when people give away 
twists and turns in a suspense novel. So we're not going to do that today because this book is so twisty. (laughs) And you, I want you guys to be able to feel like every shock is as big of a shock as possible. So instead of talking about where the story totally goes, I want to talk a little bit about some of the themes that are really throughout this entire novel. And one of them is privilege, but another one of them is this idea of motherhood. And it's something that I personally have been thinking about a lot. We've been seeing all of these articles in the news about how the pandemic has really put a light on the work that women do yeah, and how it's invisible, but it's so crucial to maintaining our society and the pieces are falling apart a little bit. And I really sort of felt like both Brie and the other mother have experienced this. And that is part of what raises the stakes for them is that their life's work is in jeopardy. Yeah. Is that a fair assessment? That is a fair assessment, which it is. It's weird because (laughs) we're in this pandemic where I think a lot of women's work is in jeopardy like I think about you when I met you do you know that when I met you you weren't a mother and now you have two boys I wasn't even married Jocelyn no that's right you were just a young hot up-and-comer and now you're a young hot already came and is now an executive editor congratulations Thank you. um but uh, but you do, you, you know, now you're working from home with two little kids and you know, you married well, that's important. Yes. Like one thing I, people ask me about, like the best thing I did for my career is I married well. And when I say I married well, I mean, I married a guy who took my ambitions. He actually put my ambitions ahead of his on multiple occasions. Um, when, when I was wanting to stay home and write he worked so that I didn't have to work and I could stay home and, and write. And when I got, when I sold my first book and they wanted me to go on book tour, he quit his job and worked freelance and stayed home with the kids. And when I was writing and I, when my career was actually costing us money, like I would get these little babies and thrust them at him and be like, take this baby and get out of my house. And he would go to his mother's for the weekend and give me like this all this silent space to write. And I remember when my first book sold, his mom called me and she was like, it never occurred to me that all those weekends Scott showed up with the babies, you were actually writing a book. You were really writing a book, weren't you? Like, of course I was. What do you think I was doing? And, and like the fact that people think this is weird is tragic. Because how many male writers do you know whose wives do this all the time? And yet Scott does what every, you know, what every wife of the artist has done throughout history. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's Walden Pond all over again with Mrs. Walden bringing his lunch every day and his sister coming in to clean the house. Come on! Exactly. Now three old maid sisters who hand copied all of his stuff with his terrible notes all over them over and over again for him to write Moby Dick. But that's invisible. The, the book, Mother May I, doesn't take place in the pandemic. It doesn't no. deal, it doesn't talk about these issues so specifically, but the, these issues that are so resonant right now are also really resonant in the book. 
And I think that that is just the, this kernel of truth that is, is so important and so ripe for conversation. Yeah. And I think it's something that people in every situation can really relate to because whether you have a relationship with your mother or your mother is alive or not, everybody has a mother and, um, seeing how desperate these women are to protect their life's work and just how high the stakes are is really powerful for me. Uh, thank you. Me, me too. You know, it's, it's something, I, I guess that's, you know, you've been my editor for, is this five books we've done together? Five oh, books. Um, that's half I, my career. I think it's four. No, because but I came on at the end of someone else's oh, love that's story. Right. You came on at the end. Yeah, I, I so four point yeah. three. Yeah, four point three great. books we've done together. Yeah, it's a big um, deal. I know it is, and it's interesting because you actually, I, I, I kind of think working with you is one of the things that made me change directions a little bit. Oh, that's so interesting. I wouldn't have guessed that. So well, that was. That was you another read thing I a lot of suspense, about. don't you? I do. I yeah. read a lot of suspense. And for me, there's nothing that I find more satisfying than an escape and having yeah. that tension on the page that drives you forward. Because we do just have so much other stuff going on in our lives. And there's Netflix and Hulu and Prime and podcasts. Like Library <laughs> Love Fest. There you go. And when you have so many other things grabbing at your attention, for me, the thing that makes something really stand out is when it's really immersive and suspense is all tied in with that for me. Well, I think I've always been, uh, you know, I'm Southern. I'm Southern. And I have this thing where I want everybody to think I'm real nice and I'm not real nice, but I want everybody to think I am. Like I have to have good manners and be real polite and only say nice things. And that's been a hamper for me as a writer, because if you've read my books, you know, I don't follow those rules as a writer <laughs> ever. But I think that I was always wanting to be more intense and murdery. Mm -hmm. I mean, every single book of mine that is more like Southern fiction, women's fiction, there's always a murder mystery. Like it's just kind of the submerged thread. And one of the things I know that you did as an editor, as we worked on these books together, was those were the threads you would zero in on and work yes. on me with. And I, I like at a certain point, I think that just, I internalized that and learned more and, and like really paid attention to how those arcs were working. So when I started writing, you know, Never Have I Ever, it just was obviously a suspense book. I remember yes. calling you and being like, this book is different, but it, it's really not. It's like that arc that you always liked in my books just came bigger and took over the book. Well, you use a phrase that I love and I've stolen. So I'm going to continue to give you credit for it whenever I use it. But you talk about using a bigger engine to drive the story and just jam it out the gate right from the start. And I think that just, it makes sense. And it, that is how I would describe the transition in your books most accurately is that they are the same books they have. They have great characters. There's big heart, there's big issues and you're funny. And it's just how the, it's just a slight change in the arc that has made it really more <clears throat> suspense for me. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah. I, I think that's, that's correct. Like it, and it's, 
it's weird because I, I can look at all these books and say, these are all my books, but that's really the only difference. But it's weird how you change that one thing and the whole book feels just more propulsive and immediate in some ways I really enjoy as a reader and as a writer. Do you think that's changed your writing process at all? No, I wish it had. <laughs> my writing process is terrible. <laughs> but, but it works. Eventually. It works eventually. <laughs> it works. Yeah. It works. I think that no I think that everybody has really unique writing processes. I've never ever heard two authors have identical processes. And the there's just so much variation in how people kind of like make a book. Yeah. Can you tell us a little I know you said earlier you're more of a reviser, but how do you kind of approach writing a book? Yeah, I don't like to write. I just hate it. It's deeply unpleasant, and I would never, ever, ever do it if you didn't have to do it to be able to revise. Like, to me, writing is going out to a Georgia stream. It's like 100% humidity, and it's 102 degrees, and the dogs have been pooping, and you're at this <laughs> filthy stream, and you're digging nasty clay out of the mud. That's writing. Revising is you take that horrible clump of yuck back to your studio and for months <laughs> you drink your favorite tea in the air conditioning with your personal cats sprawled about while you shape that into something that you feel really excited about. So I write like a bunch of terrible stuff as long as I could stand it, just churn it out and then I have months of of pleasure of tinkering and shifting and discovering. Um, but it is, it is, it is not efficient. Um, I write, I, you know, books aren't fungible. The, the good thing I think for libraries and for book publishers is about process being that way is like, I always tell people who want to write, do not check out a book on how to write a novel. You need to check out or buy 50 million books on how to write a novel and you need to read them all and then you need to cherry pick and try different stuff until you find the way you write a novel. Nobody can tell you how to write a novel. They can tell you how they write a novel and you if you're interested in learning a process it's really about picking and choosing all these little pieces and what works for you. So you need lots of books on how to write a novel to learn how to write a novel from books. I can completely 100% agree with that. And I think that it, it also is the more you read, the more you kind of can develop your own style. And so, yeah, it, it just, no, that's true. Like the, when people say, Oh, what's your one advice to aspire? Read a book. If you, if you are not, it's not a conversation if you're just talking. You're not a good conversationalist. And you're not a good writer if you're just writing. Reading is the listening part. Literature is a conversation. There's a conversation that's happening in a huge arc of all of these books. And if you want to be in that conversation and be talking about what's relevant, you need to have a sense of what the conversation is and what kinds of discourse are being listened to. And, like, and the best way to do that is to just read. Every, I'll tell you something. So when you publish my genre of books, what are you looking for but on a, in a word count way? Uh, for suspense, I'm looking for 80 to 90,000 words. 
Right. So, and then Southern fiction, women's fiction, it's more like what, 90 to 100? Yeah, 90 to 100. So I've never done word count on my books. I just write them. Mm-hmm. And I've read so many suspense books. They all come out to be like somewhere, the, the shortest book I've ever written is 84,000 words. I think the longest is 106,000 words. Like, it's just, I've read so many books. I know how, about how long a book should feel like it is. I just do it. Yeah, and it's amazing that even just like a couple extra thousand words can really just feel heavy. Yeah. And, um, it, you know, it, it, and that can be pared down really quickly or adapted quickly by just changing the length of your chapters a little bit and making sure that your pacing and your pulse beats are happening like succinctly throughout the story and at a good pace. And all of those little, all of those little things can make a really big difference, but you don't pick up on those things if you're not reading constantly. Right. And, and if you are reading constantly, you might not even notice it. You'll just internalize it and do it without ever once having to learn how. It just sounds great. If you're reading enough, like if you're reading enough, you learn stuff without knowing you're learning. Yeah. And it becomes an instinct of what works and what doesn't. Yeah. Cause you, you, you're immersed in the form. I, I also recommend rereading. Like the first time I read, I, I, I'm a book eater. Like, blah, 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 blah. Just gobble for pleasure, you know. And then once I know what happens, if the book, if the characters were interesting or they were doing something interesting with theme, I'll very often read it again. And then if I just love it, I'll put it on the shelf and it'll become like a comfort read or, yeah. yeah. What's on your shelf for a comfort read? Oh, um, the book I've read the most times, there's two that I've read the most times in my life, um, To Kill a Mockingbird Mm -hmm. and Watership Down are the two books I've read. I've read all of Jane Austen, including like Sandition and the Watsons and Lady Susan so many times. Sometimes I'll watch a movie adaptation and they'll change like one line of dialogue from Emma and I'll be like, no, no, it's actually what she says in this scene is really important. Like those are big, snuggly blanket books for me. I love that. <laughs> it's Stephen King. In fact, almost every book I've ever written references Stephen King to some degree or another. There's always a Stephen King reference. And I didn't realize it until um, I think I was like eight books in before I realized every single one of my books had referenced a Stephen King book. <laughs> Well, you also tend to put little Easter eggs in for people. And I know you're a big Buffy fan. There were some Buffy Easter eggs for a while. And the Stephen King ones, are there Easter eggs in this Mother May I that people should be on the lookout for? Um, I think it would be a hard one to, to catch unless you're local. I live in Decatur, Georgia, which is a little town inside of Atlanta. And um, this is the first time I've ever written a book that's set almost wholly in Decatur. So like there's a, I, there's a shout out to one of the independent bookstores that I actually shop at a lot. Like I set it in a real bookstore. So there's a, there's a few little like sneaky shout out things like that. And a few little, like, if you are the right kind of music nerd, there might be a couple of, of uh, musical references, but I'll let readers find those themselves. Excellent. Well, one of the other themes in the book I wanted to ask you about um, ties really kind of back into your work with performing arts, but you've talked about yourself as being a redemption obsessed novelist. What does that mean to you? Oh, gosh. I mean, I think we all, I think writers 
oftentimes have, they don't have, some writers just have one story and they tell it and they're done, right? How many times have you seen a writer write a really great book and it's put out and everybody reads it and then that's it. They never write another book. Not necessarily to the degree of Harper Lee, but um, but that happens a lot. Like they get their one story out and they never feel the need or they, they, they can't really do it again. They have the story to tell. Other writers seem to engage with an idea or a theme that is sort of a driving force in their life. And they're always telling stories around that theme as their relationship with the theme changes, as they grow an understanding of that theme, as they wrestle with it. And these are the big ones, you know, these are the big things that the questions that drive your life. And I am not a, I, I, I'm not, I like to be entertained and I, I want to entertain myself with my reading and so, and I, like, I don't want to sit through a lecture or a sermon, but I'll listen to a parable or a story all day long. So for me, like to write these books is to entertain myself and have a fun time while really thinking about the questions that drive my life. And I'm a person who has had multiple like, I, I'm not a person who believes in second chances, because if we only got second chances, I'd be so shafted. Like, I need, like, 15th chances. I need, like, 29 chances and counting. Um, so, I, as a person who has landed where I am with, like, literally the best, cutest husband in the whole world, and two children who I like as people as well as loving insanely a career I adore I even right now I have like a really good cat how'd that happen you never know what you get a kitten could be a jerk or it could be the best animal in the world he's the best animal in the world so and and a lot of these things were just grace happening to me like I should be dead I really should be dead based on some of the wonderful choices I made as a young woman and chances were made for me and opportunities were found for me and hands were extended to me. And I see that that doesn't happen for a lot of people. And I see some people, even with all those hands, just keep running till they go right off the edge of the world and they're gone when they had every hand in the world reaching for them. And then I see some people who, if you give them one little finger, can just scramble all the way up to the top of a mountain. And I see other people who like get a hand and they're taking it and it's going well. And if that grip slips, everything is lost. Like it's so unfair and it seems so random. And it's something as I've, as something I just really wrestle with is why is the world this way? And how do we as people interact with this? And, and how do we position ourselves to where we provide that grace for other people and how can you provide that grace for other people while protecting yourself because desperate people are dangerous you know so so these are the things that drive my life and so these are what my stories center around i, I think if something saves your life and for me redemption saved my life in myriad ways over the years i love it and i think that that's kind of a good it's kind of a good little nugget about all of the different themes that are in this super suspenseful book about these two women who are just at each other's throats. It's, it's an edge of your seat, can't stop turning the pages, stay up all night, read. But it's also talking about redemption and forgiveness and revenge. With no spoilers. If you are, if you have even a tiny drop of 
anger or pettiness in you and you've ever had a really good revenge fantasy, you might really enjoy this book. <laughs> I, I say, agree with that. But there's a revenge, like, there were some things I worked out writing this book that I'm real mad about. <laughs> so, <laughs> so if you, if anything in the world has ever done you wrong, this might be a book that you it's end up really, really good about. <laughs> really satisfying. Yeah, but it's also about friendship and motherhood and how important women's relationships are in, yeah. in each other's lives. And there's just, if your book club needs a book to talk about, this is it. And it's just fun. It's an escape. And for me, and for, I don't know anybody who doesn't need an escape right now. So I can't wait for everybody to read it, Jocelyn. And I think that that has kind of been the response that we've had in-house to people have been just over the moon. And there's nothing better as an editor than to be hearing from the sales team. Well, I think we're running out of time. So I just wanna say thank you so much, Jocelyn, for joining us. And thank you, Lainey, for hosting us. We are so excited for Mother May I to come out on April 6th, mark your calendars. And I think that I don't agree with that. I don't think you should mark your calendars. I think you should pre-order it. You're going to forget. Just go ahead, push that button, get it out of the way. You'll be so happy on April 7th when you get it. Yes. Yes. So it'll be a nice little present and a surprise <laughs> and it'll be perfect. Um, I just think everybody's going to love this book. I cannot wait to, for you all to read it. And if you do love it, I personally would love to hear from you. So don't be shy. And thank you again so much. Mother May I, April 6th. Thank you for listening to the Library Love Fest podcast. For more information on this week's episode, go to librarylovefest.com. Enjoying the show? We would love to hear what you think. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Library Love Fest and on Instagram at Harper Library. Be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and share the show with a friend. Lastly, if you enjoy our show, we bet you'll enjoy all of the other podcasts from HarperCollins Publishers. Find a list of shows at harpercollins.com forward slash podcast. See you next week.